This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Guys, welcome to the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a very special episode with my friend, Dr. Randy Ulmer. And for those of you that don't know Randy, Randy has been inducted into the Bowhunters Hall of Fame in 1999. He's completed the uh, archery super slam, uh, getting all 29 animals in North America. Uh, He's harvested some of the largest mule deer and elk with his bow. Um, And as a family man, I'm happy to know his wife and and his boys. And we've spent uh, time together on hunts. And he lives close to me here in Arizona. And uh, he's an unbelievable archer. Uh, He includes uh, two... Uh, 3D uh, world titles, let's see, two ASA men's professional world titles, two NABH men's professional world titles, two IBO world titles, and one FITA world title, as well as an NFAA national and and Vegas uh, indoor titles. Um, He's probably the most renowned bow hunter uh, in America. Uh, he writes a monthly column for Peterson Bowhunting, uh, Bowhunter Magazine, uh, as well as a segment on Bowhunter Television. Uh, Randy also uh, serves as the editor uh, at large of uh, Elk Hunter Magazine, and I'm happy to call him a friend. This is going to be a great episode. But before we get to that, guys, I want to announce some new things here at the J. Scott Outdoors podcast in 2016. And uh, there's some real exciting stuff going on over here. Uh, first, I'd like to thank GoHunt.com Insider for being the title sponsor of this podcast. And GoHunt. Uh, .com Insider will remain the title sponsor of this podcast, uh, but we have also picked up some additional uh, sponsors, and I'm happy to announce uh, the, the sponsors, uh, Phonescope.com, who's the leader in digiscoping devices, uh, Utah Hydrographics, they're in the water transfer printing services, they can transfer just about any pattern to any item. Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines, they've been the standout in Western hunting publications for many years. They also have a fantastic TV show. Wilderness Athlete is the authority on outdoor performance nutrition led by my friend and coach uh, Mark Paulson and the Outdoorsman's. The Outdoorsman's has been the world's leading optics authority for many decades with my friends over there. Floyd Green and Cody Nelson and I'm just excited to have uh, this great group of sponsors uh, that have stood behind and are going to stand behind the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I really appreciate them putting their name and making that their name involved with my podcast and I've been involved with most of these companies for many years and it's great to have them on board and I just look forward to a great 2016 and uh, we're going to keep the pedal down here. We're going to try and bring you as much good information with this podcast as we can. I appreciate you guys, the listeners, for all of the support that you've given me over the last 10 months here in this podcast. And uh, without you, you know, uh, this podcast wouldn't be where it is. Uh, the million downloads in 10 months is, is mind-boggling, and I'm going to do everything I can over here to continue to bring top-notch guests and information and, and education and uh, hopefully a little bit of entertainment to this podcast. So, guys, uh, I, I love your comments and your emails with your questions, and let me know how your hunts are going. You can reach me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. That's my email. Uh, you can follow along our adventures at jscottoutdoors.com, on Instagram at jscottoutdoors, Facebook jscottoutdoors, and our YouTube channel jscottoutdoors. Uh, guys, once again, let's look forward to a great 2016 here, and let's get right to the episode with my friend Randy Ulmer. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got a real special episode with friend Randy Ulmer. 
And Randy is someone that really needs no introduction. Uh, but th for those of you who have maybe uh, been new to the sport of bow hunting, Randy Ulmer is probably uh, one of the most uh, proficient bow hunters out there. And uh, I'm excited to have him on the show today. Randy, how are you doing? Yeah, pretty good, Jay. How are you? I'm doing good. I uh, owe you a lot of credit. Uh, I've uh, read your articles for years, and it's uh, been nice to get to know you personally. And we've ha actually had a couple of pretty fun hunts. I know we've had some turkey hunts with your boys and uh, some hunts down in Mexico for coos deer. I believe Levi shot his first coos deer uh, down in Mexico and, and Havelina for that matter. Um, and I credit you to my biggest coos deer buck that I've shot. You had a, a line on a ranch down there and going back, oh, five, six years ago and um, found a big old buck and, and uh, actually turned me on to it, showed me right where it was. And uh, that was a fun hunt. I, I was able to get that deer killed and uh, you killed a nice big deer as well. And it's uh, been uh, great watching your success over the years. Randy, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got your start in bow hunting? Well, to just back up a little bit, Jay, uh, Jay's actually, for Jay and I have been friends for a long time. Jay's actually been with my son Levi on three of his first kills, his uh, first Havoline, his first coos deer, and his first turkey. So, so we kind of go way back, and, and Jay knows a lot about a lot of the things that I don't know anything about. Um, now, what was your question, Jay? I've already forgot. <laughs> well, I guess one of the big questions I think a lot of people have is how does someone, you know, go about obviously starting to bow hunt, starting to hunt, but then have all the success that you've had? I, I really want to maybe dive into the early years. I know your brother, you and Rusty, uh, grew up hunting a lot together, but um, tell me a little bit about your start in bow hunting, and maybe we could get a, an inside look at how that start, uh, you know, led you down that path of progress to where, you know, you're, you're the most famous bow hunter in the world, and you've killed probably more big animals than anybody out there with a bow, and I'm just curious how it all started, and, and maybe if we could pick up a little pieces of the puzzle there to see um, you know, what's there that, that made the success that we all see now? Well, we're going to have to go way back, <laughs> way back. <laughs> when Rusty and I started, uh, Rusty actually started bowling, uh, uh, shortly before I did and he introduced me to the sport. Um, he, uh, he bought a bow, uh, just a recurve bow, I believe. And, and he went out, uh, and, was amazed. We had rifle hunted with my dad and family, uh, you know, since we were very small. But uh, he bought a bow, went out, and he was just amazed uh, at how many animals he saw, how few people there were out there. And this was in the, the uh, late 70s. And um, he just came back with all these great stories. He had shot all his arrows, hadn't hit anything. Um, so the next year we bought bows. We bought we each bought some old used bows, and then uh, we, we we bought one dozen. At times were hard back then. We bought one dozen uh, uh, twenty-two nineteen arrows, and we shared six each. And uh, the very first time we went on was an elk hunt. Uh, and by the first morning, I had shot all my arrows. Actually, loved <laughs> them and shot them again. You could shoot cows or anything back then, and we were. Um, and I had to come back and borrow some of his arrows. But Rusty, on that first hunt, actually killed a bull elk, and, and he shot it, and uh, it walked about 10 yards and fell over, and we were just baffled that you could kill something as large as an elk with a bow and arrow. And back then, there were no, you know, obviously there was not the Internet, and there wasn't much information, so we had just bought the bows and practiced ourselves and, you know, shot with fingers, that sort of thing. But... We didn't know anything, and so we were kind of self-taught, uh, which was great because we just spent hours and hours and hours shooting in the sand dunes, um, uh, you know, no targets or anything like that. We just shot into sand till the anodization was worn off our arrows, but we, we got pretty proficient, and we did well. Uh, and then it just progressed from there. Uh, we just hunted more and more and more with the bow. 
uh, obviously, bow hunting uh, for both of us has, has been very, uh, very satisfying. It's it's, uh, it's a lot different than hunting with a rifle because there's so few people out there, and um, in the woods are quiet. There's no rifle shots. It's just a um, aesthetically pleasing hunt, and I think that's why we do it. You know, uh, speaking about that, um, it seems as though as bow hunting has gained, you know, lots of popularity, um, you know, it does seem more and more that these hunts are uh, on public land are are getting, you know, there's tending to be a lot more people and a lot more, you know, one of the things about all your writings and all of the stuff that you've done so good for many years is, uh, you know, the sport has really grown. Um, Do you feel like, uh, you know, your time out in the woods now is is a little different than in the beginning. I mean, it sounds like there was hardly anybody doing it when you started compared to now. Um, maybe you could contr- compare and contrast that for me. Well, I think the, you're, you're definitely right. There are a lot more people out there. The the um, the barrier for entry now, uh, or to be proficient, is much lower because there's so much information. The bows are so good now and the equipment's so good I can take someone that hasn't ever shot a bow before Jay as you well know and and I can get them shooting fairly proficiently in an afternoon whereas back in the day when we were shooting fingers and bows that were not very good you had to practice a lot um, and so now uh, people don't have to work as hard to be proficient as, as hunters and there's just a lot more information out there you can go online and pretty much learn anything you want to learn and you can just get and then there's a lot of good tips on how to hunt as well. And, and so all the things that Rusty and I learned um, by trial and error, mostly error, uh, now you can, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're willing to be a little proactive, you can go out and learn pretty much all you need to learn sitting at your computer. Uh, you know, nothing, uh, there's no substitute for experience, but still you can learn, you can avoid a lot of the mistakes. Um, so... There are a lot more people out there, Jay, and there's a lot more serious trophy hunters now, and especially here in Arizona. If you draw an elk tag, uh, it used to be that uh, you would have uh, most hunters would come out, they'd hunt Friday, Saturday, Sunday of the first weekend, and then they'd hunt the second weekend, and that would be it. Now it's so hard to get a tag, and people look forward to it so much that most hunters, if they can afford the time off work, are going to spend the full 14 days out there. So... uh, there may not be uh, numerically any more hunters than there were before, but they just spend a lot more time out there. And the same thing for any any area that's either close to uh, a major metropolitan area during the regular over-the-counter hunts, or if there's any sort of uh, trophy hunt for deer, you're just going to see a lot more people, a lot more serious people. So one of the ways we've avoided that, though, is, is most of the hunting we do is, is, is well, not most of the hunting, but a great deal of the hunting that we do is 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 in the backcountry. So we get away from people, and and even the backcountry is filling up a little bit. But nonetheless, it, it still beats rifle hunting. Uh, and I'm not putting rifle hunting down. It's just aesthetically, bow hunting is just so much more pleasing to me. Um, I guess you're not worried about getting shot, and there's there's uh, uh, there's even with the bow hunts, there still tend to be tends to be a lot fewer hunters in the field, and those hunters tend to be stealthy and quiet. So the the whole aesthetic of the hunt is much more pleasing. Since 1982, the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix has made it their goal to provide the very best customer service combined with the latest and greatest optics and accessories in the business. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods and mounting accessories for any hunter's optical needs. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code until February 28th to receive 10% off all Outdoorsman's packs and pack accessories. Have you guys heard about PhoneScope? PhoneScope is a privately held company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. Take digiscoping photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. PhoneScope is the future of digiscoping. Get yours now. Use the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at PhoneScope.com. 
That's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com or on Instagram at Phonescope. Yeah, and it also seems like most of the bow hunts across the West uh, and, and across the country for that matter, a lot of the bow hunts fall, a lot of, a lot of the different animals right during the rut. So it seems like as an archery hunter, um, you get more opportunity at, at those animals when maybe they're, uh, out in the open and running around and chasing does and what have you. Um, you know, so I think that's another plus to archery hunting. Um, Randy, uh, everyone has seen your success photos over the last 20, 30 years. Um, I want to know about uh, your first elk, uh, your first elk that you shot at uh, or, or got, and tell me how that went and and uh, walk me through that. <laughs> well, I know you you're, you're asking me that question because you already know the answer to it. <laughs> and, uh, this is, you know, the old saying: familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, they have to know this story, and that's why he's asking it. Uh, my very <laughs> just to prove that I, that I'm I'm very human. human. Uh, human. My first, not my very first elk hunt, but the very first opportunity I had at a trophy class bull. Um, I, I saw a, a bull walking up a ponderosa ridge uh, towards me, and he was a six-point bull, and a good six-point bull. And this was, I don't know, 30, oh, geez, almost 40 years ago. And, and the bull was walking towards me, so I got behind a big ponderosa, and the bull... Um, I waited. The, the bull walked behind another ponderosa at about 20, 22 yards, and I, I pulled back my bow. And I was sure this bull was dead, but I was obviously very nervous and shaking. And and I, I shot at the bull. And to be honest, I don't remember anything from the time I drew back my bow until uh, the next thing I remember is my arrow flying about three feet over the bull's back, and he was stopped. He had no idea was, I was there. And I could see the arrow flying for, I don't know, 50, 75 yards over the back of this bull over the top of the ridge. And I remember as the bull running was running off, I, I thought to myself, how in the world did my arrow get all the way up there? And, you know, you talk to almost any bow hunter that's hunted long enough, and they have experiences like that. And that's one of the great things about bow hunting is you get so worked up when you're that close to an animal that you literally do not know what happened. Um, at least I didn't know what happened and how that arrow got there. Now, I think I know. I think I probably just closed my eyes and jerked, and I've seen that uh, with other hunters as well. You know, and that takes years and years and years of experience until that doesn't happen again, and you still have those same emotions. I still have them now when I'm close to a big mule deer, but um, you you find ways of working through that, at least you try to. I still have uh, mental breakdowns, but you, you try to work your way through that to where even though you get that work up, you can still function and still make a good shot. After that happened and, and over the years, uh, you say you work through it. So is that when you're actually practicing your shooting in your backyard? Are you trying to simulate that situation or what what did you find helped you the most to be uh, more accurate and more calm during that situation? Well, you know, um, you, you read articles and, and guys say, you know, you just got to put your mind in that sort of situation in your backyard. And to be honest with you, you can't. Uh, those overwhelming emotions, um, I don't, I can't generate them at will. Um, the thing that I think helped me more than anything, Jay, is is shortly after uh, Rusty and I started uh, bow hunting, we got into uh, competition, um, archery shooting competition. And interestingly enough, um, archery competition, if it's a seri- if it's serious competition, um, produces a lot of the same emotions, especially if you're in, uh, let's say, a shoot off or or you're shooting for, uh, you know, you're shooting at, at a national level tournament. You get those same. Not exactly the same, but very similar emotions where your adrenaline's up and you're shaking, and you have to learn to make good shots, even though, you know, even though psychologically uh, there's a lot of overwhelming things going on. And then what you learn to do is you learn to to function, even though that's going on. And a lot of people will say, hey, you know, just pretend like you're in your backyard in that situation. Well, you can't. Again, 
you can't control the emotions your body has. What I what I learned to do is I learned to, and the, and the best thing I ever did was say, you know what, I can't control these emotions, but I can make the very best shot that I know how to make in spite of all these emotions. And once I actually... Once I actually grasped that fact, that helped me more than anything. I said, you know what, I'm going to be scared to death. I'm going to be uh, worked up. But you know what, I'm going to make the very, very best shot that I can. And somehow that actually even calms you down a little bit. And it does help you because eventually you learn to go through the steps of making a good shot, uh, even though uh, psychologically you're a little overwhelmed. Nowadays, uh, Randy, when you have missed, what what do you attribute your misses to most? I mean, what is the single most, you know, the biggest factor that's made you miss, say, in the last 10 years? Um, what is that? CJ, this is why I don't like to have interviews with close friends. <laughs> if you weren't a close friend, I wouldn't have told you about all of my misses. <laughs> you assumed I never missed. But... Um, you know, everybody misses, uh, no matter what they tell you, if they shoot enough. One of, let's step back a little bit. One of the things, one of the other things that I've done is people assume because I shoot a lot and I shoot competition uh, that I shoot animals at, at long distances, and, and that's not true. Um, you know, unless it's a backup shot, I very rarely shoot very far. I, I have a, a zone that, uh, you know, especially in a situation like a mule there uh, where I'm stalking, I have a zone where I want to get a certain distance away, and I don't want to get any closer, but I don't want to get any further, and there's a there's a, 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 a sweet spot there. Um, and I always try to get into that distance, and if I don't, I'm usually hunting one particular buck, and I, the last thing I want to do is scare him or have him forbidden wound him. Most of the times, so I get into that distance, and, and it's I, I would say it's a 90% sort of thing. You can never control all the variables and, and again, you're worked up. So you can miss, but uh, when I do miss, I would have to say most of the time, I would have to say well more than half of the time when I miss, it's uh, because the animal has done something and most often with big mule deer bucks, which is kind of my focus or the thing I really like to hunt, it's because they jumped a string. So I spend more time now uh, working on quieting my bow and that sort of thing. Now, saying that, that doesn't mean that, that I don't miss just because I'm that good a shot. I do miss. And I would have to say it, it, a lot of times it's because I'm just, again, overwhelmed, just very, very, very nervous and uh, make bad decisions or just plain miss. There's n nothing else to say about it. I just miss for some reason. Yeah. Well, I, I think it goes to show, and I think people can take from it that, you know, even the best bow hunter out there uh, misses, and it happens, and you just try and learn from those mistakes and, and do better the next time. I want to uh, double back to something you were saying. Mule deer, archery mule deer is, uh, you know, your, your, one of your favorite pastimes, and big mule deer uh, really gets you going, and you've uh, been more successful shooting big mule deer than, than anybody else out there. Uh, I want to ask you specifically, uh, do you choose to stalk a buck uh, when they're bedded, or do you choose to stalk a buck when they're up and feeding? Uh, and walk me through a little bit of the variables of why on either occasion you will or you won't, or it's go time. You know, um, this is not what you want to hear, but it, it depends. Um there are certain situations where I will stalk a bedded buck. The thing that you've got to remember about a bedded buck is he has nothing else to do except protect himself. And that means, you know, his senses are fully uh, alert. Uh, his, all of his senses are fully alert. Uh, unfortunately, you have to move. You, you're going to make noise. You have to move in order to get into position. And then once you're in position, in order to shoot him, you're going to have to expose yourself. I mean, by definition, you he's going to see you. If you can see him, he can see you. So, uh, you know, unless he's looking the other way, which is very rare. So I don't really like to stock bedded bucks unless it, it's in a situation where you can uh, 
everything without them seeing you. Um, when they're up and they're moving, um, the problem that you've got is they're moving. So let's say that you're by yourself and you spot a deer uh, on the other hillside and he's up and he's feeding and you have to work your way back over and around. Well, there's a good chance if he's not bedded that he's not going to be in this, under the same tree or next to the same tree he was you know, 15 minutes ago or a half an hour ago or an hour ago when you took off for your stock. So that's the negative part of stocking in a, a deer that's standing up. Also, typically, rarely, um, is a deer by himself, uh, especially during the archery hunt. Uh, usually there are some younger bucks or whatever with him. Um, and so the deer then got to be shuffled around. The nice thing about stocking a bedded deer is if, if there are other deer around them, him, they're going to be bedded too. And so you know what all the variables are in that situation. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a case by case scenario. Uh, the one thing I do now differently than I used to do is it used to be when I would see a deer, I couldn't stand it. I had to go stalk him right now. That's all there was to it. Now, um, as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little bit more patient and I will wait until the situation is such that I think my odds are better. Um, and sometimes I'll even wait a day or two, uh, rarely, but sometimes uh, I've waited as long as three days to stalk a deer just to wait till he got into the right situation. And and that obviously was a very, very mature buck that I thought I was only going to get one crack at. And no one else happened to know where that deer was, so I was in pretty good shape. But um, the key is patience. Wait until there's a situation that is going to be a high percentage. There's never a high percentage in archery hunting with big mule deer bucks. There's never a high percentage, but there are percentages that are better than than uh, almost zero, which a lot of situations are. So wait till you have a higher percentage opportunity, and a lot of that comes with patience. But look for other deer. Um, if you think that they're in a good situation, um, stalk them. If not, if it's a morning hunt and you see them, wait till that evening. They're going to move. They're going to get in different situations. Uh, wait until they're in a good in a good position, and then make your stock. Randy, let's take that a step further and say that uh, you've already closed your distance over on the same hillside that the buck is on, and when you get over there, let's say you're 100 yards from the buck, and let's say he's bedded and he's not facing you, he's facing away, and let's say you're pretty level with the buck, okay, and, and you've already watched the deer enough to know that there's no other bucks with him. He's all alone. It's pretty open, though, between you and him. Um, and you, you're, the wind's good, and you're 100 yards from him. Would you, would you wait in a situation like that for the buck to stand and stretch and kind of start feeding and hope that maybe he's, he feeds with his head down away from you and then you know move right in, right in on his tail and then wait for him to move left or right? Or in that situation, if you could see him, would you edge your way and just keep edging your way closer and closer and closer to the buck? Well, there's one thing I won't do in that situation. I don't care how good the wind is. Um, the one thing I will not do is I will not post up 100 yards from a deer and just wait. He is going to wind you. He is going to wind you um, eventually. It, it's just going to happen. Is there a buffer there, Randy, that you would say, you know, you will sit at, you know, 300 yards or 200 yards? Is there is, is 100 kind of like in the zone that you don't want to be in? In my sleeping bag, uh, I'll What's back that? 500 yards. If, okay. if it's the sort of thing where I'm hunting out of my trailer and I took a shower that morning, um, I'll, 300 yards is good. Uh, but but I, I won't. If I'm in a situation that you described, and I'm 100 yards away from a deer. I'm either going to go in and kill that deer now, or I'm going to back completely out. Okay. There's not going to be any in between. There's not going to be any sitting there. Unless, like if I'm up on a rim rock, and the deer is down below, and the wind is coming up over, the wind has to go up over a rim rock, I'll, I'll stay there. But the vast majority of time, if you're on the same side hill as that deer, and it's country that has any contour at all eventually you know think about think about rough country as you know i know you're 
big-time fly fishermen, think of rough country as the bottom of a, a rough stream with a lot of boulders and whatnot in it. Um, that water eddies and, and curls, and it never does the same thing exactly over and over again. It eddies, it curls, it spins, and that's what air does when it goes over rough surfaces. Eventually, he's going to smell you. So you either got to get in there, kill him, or back out, one or the other. You know, I've I've watched you uh, in several occasions, and I actually learned a lot by watching how, um, and it's much like I've watched a lot of lions um, over the years and how they kind of just sit on a rock and they just sit there and look with their eyes and they observe for a long time. And, you know, hearing you say, you know, you waited a couple days for a buck to get in the right position, I think a lot of people could take even rifle hunters could take uh, note of that and, and remember that there are times to be aggressive and then there's times when the buck is buck or bull or whatever they're hunting is not in a good position. And, and you know, unless you have someone else that's eyeing the buck or you, you fear that the buck is in a position that's very vulnerable and someone's going to see him, uh, sometimes it's best just to pick your, pick your, you know, pick your battle, so to speak, and, you know, wait until it's perfect and then move in and, and execute the kill. Um, well, Jay, you're a, you're a very, very successful elk guide, and you know a lot about elk hunting. Um, and and mule deer elk hunting, mule deer and elk hunting are similar in some ways, and they're very dissimilar in, a, in, a, in another. Uh, one thing about elk hunting is when you see a big bull, you got to go and kill him. See him you got to kill him when you see him. That's my opinion. You have to get it done. That's not the case with you know there because elk, you know, during the rut when we're hunting these elk, they could be five miles away the next day, uh, you know, and they're moving constantly and they're not going to be in the same hillside. So that's that's different. But the similarity is that when you're elk hunting, as you know, there's really only two speeds. Um, there's there's almost as fast as you can go to get a front front of them or get into position to do what you have to do. And then there's almost as slow as you can go so they don't see you. And there's a similar thing with mule deer. You know, you, you when you're stalking a mule deer, you know, especially if the deer's up and feeding, you need to go around the ridge and get up over to them. You've got to go as fast as you can go. Get over there, get in position, get to as close as you can get where you know they're not going to hear you. And then when you get... Within, you know, in their, in the red zone, we'll call it the red zone as a football analogy, but when you get within that red zone, you can't do anything wrong. And the problem I see that people have is I watch them go on a stock and when they're half a mile away from the deer, they're trying to be quiet. They're trying to move slowly. It doesn't matter. But then when they get close to the deer, they don't go slow enough. So, the key is, is you can go real fast to get in position before something changes. Then when you get when you get close, you have to literally move like the hands of a clock, or they are going to see you. Randy, I know we've talked about it before, but um, I know you told me one time that you've shot very few deer, maybe even no deer, with your shoes on. Is does that still hold true? And in, in Tell me what distance usually you you go barefooted, or not barefooted, but take your shoes off. It depends on, like, if I'm in rocks, I mean, when I say rocks, I don't mean, like, baby head rocks. I'm talking about gravel. I'm talking about big rocks. If I'm in big rocks, I'll leave my shoes on until I get about 100 yards away, because I'm, I'm wearing tennis shoes. They're pretty quiet. But um, no, here, here's how I do it, Jay. If I can hear myself walking... Um, you know, whatever that is, six foot from my ear to, to my feet. If I can hear myself walking and I'm within 100 yards of that deer, I know he can hear me, okay? So uh, that's when I decide to take my shoes off. When I can hear myself walking and I'm within 100, 125 yards of the deer, especially if it's not windy and it's quiet, and it, if, if there's no, if there's nothing but trees between them, if there's a, like a ridge between me and them, you can make a whole lot more noise. Even at 100 yards, if you're over the top of the rim rock, you can make a lot of noise. So, but to answer your question, if I shot a deer with my shoes on, it was an accident. Um, meaning that just something happened, I had to get there quick, or, I, you know, I, when I get close, it just shoes make too much noise, and it's just all there is to it. So, no, I, I, 
I've killed pretty much all my deer with my in my stocking feet. Do you go straight into your into your socks, or do you actually have something else that you wear over your your socks? No, but you know, I've my feet are really tough. I go barefoot all all year long, and my feet and my boys' feet are really tough. And and uh, I, I do I do socks, even elk hunting. I do socks. You know, uh, in elk hunting, you know, you might go obviously you might go a mile or a mile and a half um, after elk. Uh, and you have to have tough feet. You can't just go do it. You have to have tough feet. Uh, and the bottom of my feet are very tough. Uh, so, um, At GoHunt.com, we are restoring the heritage of the old and constantly redefining the new. We stay focused and put our efforts into redefining the future of Western hunting. What makes us special? What makes us different? We are the new breed of hunter. We are the customers that we serve. We are the innovators, and we are the future. Visit GoHunt.com slash insider and join the movement. Use the J. Scott promo code when signing up and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. Whether you are interested in elk, deer, antelope, bighorn sheep, or moose, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines will bring the adventure to your mailbox. These publications feature articles on the finest hunting gear, tips and tactics from experienced hunters, field judging trophies, glassing techniques, calling strategies, and much more. To become a more knowledgeable and skilled hunter, subscribe today. Go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott and enter your email address for a chance to win a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. I know another game that you like to play with your boys, and maybe not now, but when they were littler, is uh, you guys like used to like to sneak up on each other and, and uh, scare each other. Uh, do you guys still do that today? Oh, my God. Well, you know where my office is. Uh, my office, my home office is, is downstairs in, <laughs> in a walkout basement, and uh, my boys still, when they come home from school, their game is to sneak up on me and scared the living bejesus out of me. <laughs> and, uh, and Levi, my youngest, has gotten so good. Well, you know his hunt, his success as a bow hunter, and he's 16 years old now. Um, he, well, I'll tell you a story about Levi. Yeah, he's extremely sneaky. And I, I've been doing this with them since they were three or four years old, just kind of for fun, but also, I don't know, there's something, uh, each of us is a predator deep inside, I think. And uh, it's fun for us to sneak up on things, and, and we have made it a game, as you know. But, yeah, we still do that. But <laughs> I've hunted with a lot of people, as you have, Jay. And one of the frustrating things about hunting with other people is, even though you're probably making as much noise as them, you don't hear the noise you're making as you're walking through the woods. You always hear the noise that they make, and it irritates you. Mm-hmm. Uh, hunting with Levi, uh, even when he was 10, 11, 12, uh, 13, um, I would get frustrated because I'd be walking along and I would, I couldn't hear him and I would think, hey, grief, where is that kid? And I would turn around and he would be right behind me. <laughs> he was the quietest person I've ever hunted with. And an interesting story, and it, you didn't ask me about this frustrating anyway because I'm kind of proud of it. This year, Levi had a uh, an elk tag here in Arizona and um, he's 16 years old and he uh, told me that you know, Dad, um, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I want to do this on my own. He says, uh, you know, you can come and, and cook and <laughs> hang out, <laughs> uh, but I want to. I don't want to go. I don't want you in the woods with me. And you know, I, I thought, well, you know, it's kind of a father-son deal. He just doesn't want me in the woods. And my nephew Zach, who you know very well, came up one weekend to help us. I said, hey, Zach, see if maybe I won't let you go out. And, because he's closer to the same age. And, and Zach says, hey, Levi, can I go with you? And Levi goes, no, I'm doing this on my own. So the bottom line is, you know, you teach them young, and uh, they become independent, and Levi did his whole well, thing, and he shot a bull all on his own this year. Uh, well, until, until, he, until he killed it. And then it's like, yeah. <laughs> well, he called me up and, hey, Dad, you know, come help me pack it out. And I said, well, wait a minute. I said, it's all on your own. Anyway, the bottom line is he's very sneaky, and at 16 years old, he's independent enough and assured, self-assured enough to do hunt an elk on his own. Absolutely. I'm sure that's very rewarding to hunt with your boys and see them be successful. 
Uh, Randy, uh, you stay fit all year long. Um, people, and I think a lot of people don't. Uh, tell me about what you do in the off season. A lot of people don't know how rigorous of a workout regimen that you that you have, but it's more of a just natural everyday part of your life. And maybe tell me how that's helped you be successful in bow hunting. Well, I've been a, be a little self-serving, but I've been an endurance athlete my whole life. I've, I've competed at some sort of endurance athletics work. But I, you know, I was a runner and, and ran um, adventure race, 24-hour adventure races, marathons and whatnot, up till my knees kind of started to hurt a lot. And uh, now I, I compete at, at, uh, in bike riding. My, my, my sons are actually both on the uh, high school mountain bike team, and I'm one of the coaches for the team, but we've competed at mountain bike racing for some time. So that and, you know, just I would want to call myself a gym rat, but I... I I just I enjoy being fit, and one of the reasons I like being fit is not so I'll look good to the girls because I've already got my girl, but just so that just really for life reasons you just feel better about yourself, and and plus the country that I like to hunt, the rough country I like to hunt, you have to be fit, and and you know I'm I'm in my mid fifties and. Um, most guys my age, all my old high school buddies and stuff, they just can't do it anymore. Um, and being selfish and not wanting to give up, I, I try to stay in really good shape. And it, and it serves you well because not only can you climb that mountain to make that stock or you can backpack up there, one of the things that I, I've noticed about eating well and being fit on a hunt is you have endurance, and I'm not talking about endurance to, to go 10 miles in one day. You are healthier, and I think you have a healthier mindset as well. And, and to go on a 14-day hunt, you're feeling just as good on the 14th day of the hunt as you did at the beginning. And a lot of guys, even young guys in their 20s, they'll go out and they'll hunt hard for three or four days, and they are just exhausted. Uh, and they just want to go home. When you're tired, cold, hungry, any of those things, wet, you know, it's just human nature, especially uh, for us civilized humans, you just want to go home. It's uncomfortable. And if you are tough um, and you've exposed yourself to that sort of thing and you are fit and you're well-fed, you're going to stay. And one of the keys to my success, for sure, is not my abilities. I don't think I have really any special kind of abilities, perhaps other than my shooting. But uh, it's not your abilities. It's your um, it's being out there long enough. I mean, if 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 two people have the same abilities and one guy's out there one week, one guy's out there two weeks, the guy that's out there two weeks is going to be twice as successful. Absolutely. I mean, it may, it makes sense. Um, Randy, what would you say, you know, this is kind of a weird question, but what would you say your weaknesses are? Uh, you know, you, you have to have some parts of your uh, repertoire, so to speak, that are, weaker than others. What are your weaknesses? Can I hand the phone to my wife? <laughs> <laughs> this is She's only a one-hour show. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we have time. <laughs> yeah, this is only a one-hour show. So, um. <laughs> No, uh, you know, Jack, I mean, to be honest, as a hunter, my here's, here's my weaknesses. Um, I like to, I like to chase really big stuff and, and, uh, I, I'm not sure why, other than I just really like big antlers. And, you know, maybe it's egotistical. I'm sure an element of, of it is, but I just really like to chase, chase big stuff. And, and a, lot, a lot of times, especially in the last 10 or 12 years after I've been hunting for so long, I get um, almost obsessed and to the point where uh, I could, like, well, for instance, um, I was fortunate enough to draw a strip tag, as you well know, this past year, um, or this past fall, and uh, which is really hard to draw, and there's some giant bucks there, but it's really, really hard hunting. Well, I got obsessed over a couple of really big bucks that were had been seen on trail timer cameras, and anyway, the bottom line is I spent 25 days up there, um, and 
uh, 21 of which were actually hunting days. The season is 21 days long, and I, I never even got within full range of a deer. Um, whereas, had I been less obsessed, I could have broken away from those deer, deer of a lifetime and, and probably had opportunities at, at great bucks uh, that would have been easier. So definitely being obsessed with with trophies um, is, is 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 a weakness a weakness that I have. Um, How do you, Randy, in that situation? Um, I know you hunt the high country a lot, and I know you find bucks kind of all over and what have you. Um, do you ever? choose to not go after the biggest buck because he's in a horrible situation, horrible areas or the area that he lives in very inefficient to get in there and get him killed. Uh, you know, and, and have you wasted, uh, you told me about the, the strip hunt and not getting in bow range, but in the high country, I mean, are there places where you just say, I can't kill that deer there, or do you give it a try and, you know, if you end up blowing them out a couple of times, you end up switching over to another deer, or do you try and pick, you know, the biggest deer that you can efficiently kill? Well, no, you know, Jay, in the high country, it's interesting. And if you had asked me this question 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I would have answered it differently. In the high country, what I've found is, is there's some really, really, really rough country. And, and 15 or 20 years ago, I would have looked at a deer in a, in a certain basin, and I would have said, okay, you can't kill one. Um, I I love the high country now because I know that that deer, uh, that, first of all, you can get around in that really rough country. If you're patient and wait, again, patience and wait for him to get into a different situation. Before, if I couldn't stalk him today and do it today, I was going to back out and do something different. Now I know if it bugs in a really nasty basin, he's going to get in a situation where I can come over the backside or something. Eventually, if I wait two or three or four days, He's going to be still. To answer that particular question, I I cannot think in the last ten years of not hunting the very biggest spot uh, that I could find. Now, and, and go ahead. No, go ahead. In in those situations, um, let's say you're scouting through the summer and you're watching a buck. How much will they move from? Day to day, are are we talking, you know, hundred yards? Or are we talking a half a mile? It depends on. The, it's interesting, Jay. Um, deer in different parts of the West move different amounts. Uh, but to answer your question in generality, in the high country, and let's say the high country of Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, uh, Utah, um, generally. In the summer, in August and early September, very little. If you find a buck in, say, July, there is a really good chance that that buck is going to be in that basin or maybe uh, on the, the same ridge but on the opposite side in the next basin. There's a really good chance that that buck is going to be within a mile, not two miles, of, of where he gets out. Most of that high country has water. So they've got water, they've got feed, they've got everything that they need right there. So unless there's, like if, a, if somebody moves a band of sheep into the area, you know, domestic sheep, obviously that's going to change things. But if there's nothing that bothers them deeply, they will be there. And that's a nice thing, and that's why I enjoy it so much, because I can spend, I literally spend, I don't know, 30 days at least, looking for deer in the summertime. And that's the nice thing about, that's another nice thing about hunting with a bow, is, you know, you might have a rifle tag and you could spend 30 days in the summer looking for that deer and finding the deer, but when a rifle season comes around, it really hasn't done you any good. Yeah, he's going to be gone, right? He's going to be somewhere else. It's kind of like scouting for elk, as you and I well know, you know, people spend their whole summers, they get an elk tag here in Arizona, spend their whole summer scouting for elk, well, they find these bulls, and well, <laughs> a week before the archery season starts, that elk might be twenty. Literally, I shot a bull that somebody had on a trail timer camera in July or August, and I shot the bull thirty miles. Well, it was in unit nine, and I shot the bull thirty miles from where they had the trail timer camera on, uh, in, in the archery hunt. 
and they had the picture from, I think it was July or August. So that's the nice thing about hunting. That's one of the reasons I love hunting mule deer because, to be honest with you, if you if you told me, okay, you can't kill a big deer, you can't actually do the hunt, because the hunt's kind of a culmination of the whole thing, but if they were to tell me that you can't hunt a deer, you have to choose. You can either hunt deer or you can scout deer and let your nephews and your sons kill them, but you can't kill a deer. I'd take the scouting any day. It's just fun. Yeah. I'm I'm a backpacking fiend. I love backpacking. I love being in the high country. I love spending the time up there, and I just love it. There's no pressure. There's no yeah. You know, pressure is one fun, and I actually get a hoot out of hunting with my kids and my nephews. Yeah, there's for sure. It's nothing like hunting with good family and friends. Um, Randy, that brings me to something else that I've been talking about a lot on my podcast. And and one of the things that I've noticed is there's a lot of trail uh, cameras, uh, you know, all over and people are really using them. Uh, one of the things that I think would draw me towards uh, hunting uh, in the high country and what have you is, to me, it seems like more of a, you know, you go out and glass. And you go out and find those deer with your eyes. And 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 I've talked about it on the podcast before. I, I don't, you know, I, I go back and forth on the trail cameras, um, but there's just something about them that I feel like, uh, you know, it's almost not fair. Uh, I feel like, um, you know, I, I saw in Unit 9 this year, you know, 12, 15 cameras on every, you know, drinker on every little puddle. Uh, on every wallow, I'd find a wallow and, you know, three days later, there'd be four cameras on it. And um, I don't know. I don't know where we're going with this trail camera thing. But, uh, you know, it, it it is one of those things that, uh, you know, Darn, I love going down to Mexico, uh, hunting on private property. We love locking the gate. And we like to go hunt. We like to go, you know, glass our bucks up and go find them. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I, like I said it before, I don't want people to take it that I'm, you know, totally against trail cameras. But at some point, um, you know, we're, we're hunters and, it, and it's, you know, it's there's something about going out and getting up on a high ridge and glassing and glassing and glassing and finding those deer. And I don't want to sit here and say that, you know, someone that found a deer with the trail camera, because, you know, quite honestly, that big coos buck that I had, there was a trail camera picture of it and and, you know, you, you turned me on and said, you know, go hunt that country. And, you know, I hunted there for a couple of weeks and first week never even never even saw the buck. So trail cameras can be effective, but there's something about uh, it seems like as humans, we've overcooked this trail camera thing. And I don't know what the solution is, um, but it's sure refreshing to see guys that are going out there and, and glassing these deer up and, and finding the deer, quote unquote, the old fashioned way. I was curious if, if you just had any thoughts on, on that. Well, <laughs> you know, um, it would be disingenuous of me uh, to say that I'm against Trump kind of cameras. I, I was on the strip, and there's no Arizona strip, uh, which is for your listeners that don't know, it's like you know, there's Nirvana, there, well, just because there's giant deer there, but it's big, big, big country, not very many deer. And um, I used trail. I used trail timers when, when we had that little place down in Mexico, where that uh, ranch where you and I hunted. Uh, that's yeah. the first time I've ever used trail timer cameras, and they're great down there because they let you see what's on the ranch. And because, as you remember, there was very, very low deer density down there, and, and we did uh, get a picture of the buck you eventually killed, and that's the only reason we knew he was there. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it was effective there, but the big deer I was chasing down there, you know, we never got a trail timer camera him. We, we glassed him up. So, um, Wilderness Athlete is committed to improving the health and quality of life for the outdoor athlete by providing field-tested, scientifically validated nutrition and sports performance product formulations. Check them out at wildernessathlete.com and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any order in January 2016. Utah Hydrographics is in the water transfer printing service and they are open to whatever you can dream up. Choose from a wide range of camel patterns, designs, and colors. 
whether it's guns, bows, tools, rifle stocks, vehicles, steering wheels, fenders, dashboards, paint guns, fishing rods, cups, tripods, watches, knife grips, helmets for a local sports team or for your motorcycle, picture frames, mailbox, animal skulls, you name it, they can probably do it. Utah Hydrographics loves taking things that are general looking and turns them into something that looks fantastic and eye-popping. Give them a call and see what they can do for you and receive up to a 10% discount by using the J. Scott 16 promo code. Visit them at utahhydrographics.com or on Instagram at Utah Hydrographics. I have very conflicted feelings about trail timer cameras. Um, to be honest, if they outlawed them, I wouldn't feel bad about it at all because I don't use them anymore and purely selfishly, I don't. But, but again, I'm being disingenuous because um, I hunted with, with uh, 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 a friend of mine who's also a guide and he helped me in, 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 uh, this year. And he has a lot of trail timers cameras up on the strip and, and that's why... I asked him if he'd help me is because they're deer up there are hard to find. But yet, turning it around, had I hunted the strip the way I hunt normally and just gone out, the problem with the trail timer camera, and I give a lot of, of credit to the guys because it is a lot of work. And the thing oh, about it is all it does is tells you the big deer there. And I wasted, I shouldn't say wasted, I hunted a lot, a lot of days, a lot of days, looking for deer that no one had ever laid eyes on. And I was looking for the deer to kill it because I knew it lived there. And had I just gone out to the strip and hunted the way I hunt, which is get on a point glass, move the next day to another point glass, the thing about glassing up a deer is, okay, you know where he lives, you know where he is, you can actually go hunt that deer. And had I done that... Um, I think there was a decent chance that I would have been able to be successful. Whereas hunting ghost deer, I was not. And, and again, had I had a rifle, it might have been a little different situation because you just have to see a deer one time. So to answer your question, Jay, uh, it, it would again, it would be very disingenuous of me to say that, that no trail timer cameras need to be gone because I've, used, I've, I've, I've been the uh, beneficiary of trail timer cameras use. Um, yeah. And, like and, if I'm very conflicted. If they were, went away, would I be sad? Other than the fact that I've got a couple of friends that help auction hunters do it, and that's kind of how they make their living, and I really like these guys. I mean, they're really good guys. It would make me feel bad for them, but purely selfishly, if everyone had to do it the way I do it, uh, it wouldn't make me feel bad at all. Well, and I, I, I think you, you bring up a great word there and it's conflicting and that's how I feel about them because, you know, I, I, I think one of the biggest problems that I see is the fact that, so during the, the Unit 9 archery elk hunt, say there's 10 cameras on a drinker, well, they're going to get checked, you know, four or five times per day and people in and out. So you've basically now, once the season started, eliminated that water hole as a, an area that's going to attract game and they end up moving and so you know it, it it's one of those things that it, it you know i'm conflicted too uh i'm sure i'll get some emails I, i'm not bagging on anyone that uses trail cameras and like randy says you know i've i've been uh blessed to take some animals that that we did get on trail cameras so it's it's a little bit hypocritical for me to even be conflicted about it but it is one of those things that i think across the west over the years here we're going to have to do something about um it seems like uh you know it creates a lot of animosity between people i think people sometimes feel like they own certain animals because they have pictures of them and it's just different now on the arizona strip i will tell you uh having gone up there this year with parker on the rifle hunt i mean uh, it's so big and there's so few deer. If you didn't have cameras, it would be very, very, very hard to kill uh, deer in general. I mean, you could go three or four days and not even see a, a single deer. So, um, you know, they definitely have their place and, and guys have been very successful using them. Uh, I just wonder, you know, how far how far it will go. 
the, the, the one thing that I'll say is viscerally, when you walk up to a, a public water hole, you know, a, 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 either a drinker or a, a, you know, a mud water hole, you know, a dirt tank, when you walk up there and all these flashes go off if you walk up earlier in the morning, viscerally, it makes me angry because I feel like I'm in the middle of nowhere and, and I feel like my privacy or my, my, uh, one of the reasons I hunt is to get away from things and to, to be by myself in the wilderness. And it does take away from that wilderness experience to have your picture taken. And I almost feel a little violated, like, well, wait a minute, <laughs> everyone knows where I am and when I'm there. And it's, it's, it's a weird feeling. So again, I think conflicted is the best way to say it. Cause I, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong, but it doesn't feel right. <laughs> so yeah. I think everybody needs to make their own decision. And, and I don't know how they could regulate it to where it didn't feel so intrusive. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, that's, that's some um, discussion we're going to have to have for a long time. Yeah, you know, uh, mutual friend Bill Winky in the Midwest, you know, private land. Um, I, I just don't feel the same. I'm not as torn on private land. Private land, you own the land, you own the drinkers. You're, you know, you're obviously not going to in, interfere or affect anybody else's hunt. I say run a million cameras. You know, know as much about your property and what's on your property as you can. It's just something about uh, where we've gone from, say, 10 years ago to where we're at now with with uh, some of the arguments and fights and people owning, you know, feeling like they own deer and what have you. I just was curious to get your opinion. I appreciate you weighing, weighing in on that. I kind of well, one uh, thing I can touch on, Jay, is technology is moving forward every day. And now um, I understand that there's cameras that will signal you and send you a picture on your cell phone. Uh, when it gets a picture and, and, uh, you know, and, and with technology moving forward, I'm sure there's going to be technologies in 10 years that we don't even, uh, we can't even dream imagine, we can't even dream what they're going to be right now. And, you know, you know, like Pope and Young or, or any other organization, you know, you got to draw the line somewhere. And so we're just going to have to decide as, as a group, uh, of sportsmen, this, Arizona, where you and I live, we're going to have to decide as a group, as sportsmen, uh, what where that line is going to be drawn. And you know, it's open for discussion, and and I'm not really adamant one way or the other. Uh, but once that line's been drawn, uh, we need to stick with it. And and the other thing is, is it needs to it needs to be drawn far enough in the future uh, that it's not going to profoundly affect somebody's source of livelihood. These guys do this for the auction hunters and make a living at it. You know, they need to have some sort of transition period if they do outlaw cameras, I think, where they can, uh, you know, move on to some other, some other way of finding these animals. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I do think it needs to be brought up. I do think it needs to be discussed. And, and, and those guys that do it can probably help us determine oh, yeah. what, where that line needs to be drawn. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, Randy, I really appreciate having you on. Um, I'm looking forward to, Dar and I are headed to Mexico here in the middle of January to chase uh, some rutting coos deer for a couple of weeks. And uh, uh, we're excited to uh, get down there as we always are. It's a great time. And uh, I appreciate having you on and, and wish you and your family the, the best of holidays and hope you have a Merry Christmas. And uh, just uh, thanks for being the great role model that you are and providing all of the uh, quality articles and everything that you've done over the years to give back to bow hunting. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it, DJ. Congrats on the, all the big stuff you got this year. Well, sheep were incredible. And that, that, uh, that uh, buck you guys got on this trip, man, that thing was huge, heavy, very nice. Yeah, I, it was a real eye-opener for me. Uh, Breck Bundy up there, his crew did a great job, and really I was just an observer and, and just enjoyed being up there and seeing a deer like that. It uh, you know, really got my juices flowing. I've, I've got 15 points, so I'm still a ways away, but um, you know, seeing those deer just uh, got me 
got me really excited. So, um, buddy, thanks for coming on. Tell uh, the family hello, and uh, we'll have to have you on again. I appreciate it. Sounds good, JC. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card when signing up for the GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster? Hunt more? Go to GoHunt.com Insider and join today.